1502, in the court of Cesare Borgia, two polar opposites began a collaboration that would change history. A collaboration that, if their plan worked, would destroy a major city, move a river, and make both men rich beyond measure. In one corner of this collaboration, we have Niccolo Machiavelli, a devious, cunning statesman. In 1502, he was sent by Florence to spy on Cesare Borgia, which, of course, Borgia knew all about. Machiavelli would someday use his political experience spying on Borgia's court to write the literal book on power schemes called The Prince. To this day, when someone is called a schemer, we say they are a Machiavellian. In the opposite corner, we have Leonardo da Vinci, sensitive painter, artist, and overall genius. Da Vinci had been hired to design seize weapons for Cesare Borgia. By 1502, he was following Borgia around northeastern Italy, designing new fortifications for his castles. It was here, during their time in court, where Leonardo da Vinci and Niccolo Machiavelli would meet, team up, and try to steal a major river. Think about that. Machiavelli, a spy whose mail was being decoded by Borgia and da Vinci, who was designing Borgia's weapons, these men were polar opposites, yet they would plan the heist of the century. What river were they planning to steal? Oh, just the most important river in Tuscany, the Arno River. This was the main water supply for both Florence and Pisa. If da Vinci and Machiavelli got their way and diverted the river, Pisa, home of the Great Leaning Tower, would have dried up like old pasta. So why did these two geniuses have it out for Pisa? And what did they have to gain by stealing a river? And why haven't we heard about the artist and the politician who killed a city like a couple of renaissance supervillains? As we'll find out, it wasn't for lack of brains or savvy from our polar opposite duo. Oh, by the way, if you're wondering what the Arnold River looks like, you've already seen it. The river Machiavelli and da Vinci were planning to steal. That's the river in the background of da Vinci's most famous painting, the Mona Lisa. Because da Vinci memorized every inch of the Arno while planning their heist. You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self-empowerment and all the myths, lies, and misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then we use science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer a better you. I'm your host, Todd Laments, the extrovert. And I'm the writer, researcher, and introvert, Joe Anthony, whose job it is to dig through the outer layer of no-duh on the internet and get to the juicy facts. Have you ever met someone who seems like your polar opposite in every way? Someone who disagrees with you, seemingly just to disagree with you. Do you think you could collaborate with them? Well, today we're talking about the value, the pitfalls of collaborating with your polar opposite. In romance, they say opposites attract. We're going to find out if that's true for business as well. And in the meantime, we'll learn how two icons from the Italian Renaissance almost got away with Grand Theft Waterway. We'll also be exploring myths about polar opposite team-ups. Myths that make us afraid 
to disagree with our office counterparts. Myths that have us calling HR for mediation when we could be sharing power and conquering the world. Myth one, partners who are radically different will always disagree and disagreement is a bad thing. If someone disagrees with you, it means you're butting heads and butting heads is unproductive, right? Myth two, introverts and extroverts just can't get along. Messy people and organized people can't share space. Gifted and hardworking athletes don't belong in the same field. And dogs and cats will never ever live in harmony. Myth three, you'll all know a good polar opposite partner when you see one. We all think we can gauge a good partner. But if I, Todd, am an extrovert, won't that lead me to picking other extroverts to work with? How will I know when I've found the right introvert? Today is all about tips for finding those powerful polar opposite collaborators. But first, Joe and I are going to discuss why Machiavelli and Da Vinci were such an interesting match. So, Todd, I had a quick question for you. You uh, you picked this episode out. Uh, sorry to reveal too much about our process, but but you picked polar opposite co- collaborators, right? Absolutely. Well, and the reason I did us being the introvert and extrovert, working on speech projects, working on what we're doing now, the show. Right. And we got along so good, but on paper, we would probably not work well together. So you're going to have to convince me, because you, you seem to think there is value to opposites collaborating. Well, we went down a few rabbit holes with Einstein, the guy he worked with. We could have per- picked, there's a lot of combos through history, um, celebrated geniuses. Um, Bill Gates had Steve Ballmer. Michael Jordan had Dennis Rodman. George Lucas had his wife. But our polar opposite team today is much, much stranger. Okay. I, I believe you now that we've talked about the, the river heist. Um, <laughs> so, but, so these two, to, to put it into sort of a modern framework for me, um, so these two were basically co-workers. Sort of. The, I was like, I'm going to tell you a little about their personalities. Okay, okay. Machiavelli was very interesting. He wrote a politician's handbook, which was on how to get ahead, how to claw your way to the top, how to cheat, how to lie. Um, like, like politicians really need one, right? Right. Um, it, this was to be ruthless, self-serving, and cunning. And it says that in print. You've read the book. The, this is the prince we're talking Correct. about. Correct. Okay. Um, he, he earned a reputation for being devious. He liked shocking his associates and, uh, and other political parties about how truly shameless he was and how there was no low for him. Um, his political philosophy was one to resort to any means to establish and preserve total authority. Machiavelli was not diplomatic at all. He had a saying, the wicked win. Nothing is off table. The crueler, the better. So in, in modern terms, like if he was a politician, he'd be like one of these attack ad, you know, slander and, and drag your opponent through the mud kind of people. He was worse than that, Joe. He, he, even his values were. He looked into, he took, a, he took it on himself to investigate um, why everyone felt like um, this whole thing. If you, you want to treat people the way you want to be treated, right? That's how we all think. The golden rule, yeah. Yeah. He, so he looked into that. He, he discovered that meekness makes you a better person inside and outside to everyone, but it also makes you more likely to become a victim. Oh. 
<laughs> yeah. It's a very and, negative worldview. Oh, very. And he said it was very, very better to be feared than to be loved. I've heard that before. I mean, I, I've heard that saying before. But So he, he did some more research. And what he what he traced all this back, he's like, why does everybody think this? When you're meek and everything, everyone takes advantage of, you're a victim, you don't get any stuff. Why would you give away your wealth? None of this makes sense. Mm-hmm. So he, he did his own research. And he traced it back to Christianity and Jesus, of course. Oh. And he then he went over all Jesus' life and, and put really put down on paper how he was tortured, how he was betrayed, how he was used. And he said, why would anyone want to be like Jesus? He says, so all these people trying to be like Jesus, I'm going to be the exact opposite of Jesus. So he, he literally just threw Christian values out the window. The, the, the whole, oh, by the way, we are not a Christian podcast per se. <laughs> But but we like analyzing the values of, of politicians. So he, he like, and to think about that too, um, he is at this moment in this story trying to work for Cesare Borgia, who is the son of the Pope. So for someone to f- so fully throw away Christian values and to adopt the opposite, that's insane for his time. And to show it in his every day. He's, he's the opposite of being political with people. He's nasty and ruthless, and he does he has shock value around everyone and lets everyone see the way he is to be feared. Wow. Yeah. So, so the dogma of his time is, is Christian values. The dogma of our current time is um, political correctness. So right, you this would be, <laughs> yeah. if I were Machiavelli in, in this time, that would be like me deciding to be the least political correct person on earth. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's going against the grain. Now, Da Vinci, on the other hand, he was his polar opposite. Everyone around him, everyone knows him as this gentle, kind, curious, lovable character. Um, a lot of his early bi- uh, biographers saw a man with great personality. He was very generous. He was loved by all his contemporaries. Leonardo's disposition was so lovable that he commanded everyone's affection. He was known in company as a sparkling conversationalist. He also had a very distinctive, rich sense of humor. He wasn't greedy. He wasn't just not greedy. He didn't value money at all. He was like a full rock star then. Like like he's entertaining people. He's drawing and painting. He's, he's giving out these inventions. Yeah, just everyone's drawn to him. He's just a special person. He used to think that if you want money in abundance, you will end by not enjoying it. So he was kind of like a minimalist. Oh, wow. A, a minimalist who is, happens to be working for Cesare Borgia, the son of the Pope at that moment. Who has exact He says the more stuff you get, the more people you kill, the more powerful you are, the more better you are, the more happier you are. He didn't even value happiness. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that before. Doesn't everyone want to be happy? So he just wants to be cruel and gain more power. Cesare, you mean? Yes. Wow, okay. Right. Now, back on Da Vinci. I know I'm jumping around. Okay. He says the man who riches who wishes to become rich in a day will be hanged in a year. So he sees a he, you know, that's another way for me saying that money is the root of all evil. I don't want to get into spoiler terror too hard, but uh, isn't it like a year or two after this Cesare Borgia is being uh, murdered? <laughs> We're getting ahead of ourselves here. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll I'll cut back. But to tie this all up in a sentence, um, what I took out of this was Leonardo da Vinci. He made everyone he came in contact with feel special without acting superior. Because let's face it, he, he, he's a genius. Right. 
So we've got we've got the genius who makes everyone feel good about being around him, and then we've got Machiavelli who literally shows up as a spy in court. Everyone knows it, and and he only believes in power, and he he sort of idolizes uh, uh, Cesare. How did these guys get along? Well, these two met in the court of Cesare Borgia. One night in Senegalia, the pair witnessed a horrible killing. Hopefully this violence and the men's reaction to the violence would serve to highlight the polar opposite thinking of Machiavelli and Da Vinci. So, wait a second. This is this is the Renaissance. So, like, they see, I mean, like, roadside violence and banditry. So how, how bad could their reaction have been? Well, I'll tell you this story. So Ma- Machiavelli and Leonardo were with uh, Cesare Borgia, and they were having dinner together. And Cesare Borgia had a falling out with some of his commanding soldiers, uh, some of the leaders of some of his troops, some of his army. Okay. So he had lured them back with like, hey, guys, everything's okay. Let's just have a little talk. And when they came in peace to rework and and figure things out, Mm -hmm. he butchered them in front of his dinner guest, strangled them, the top commanders, and then the other ones he took away to be slaughtered later. Oh, so this is like up close. Like this, this is this is very know. personal. Wow. Yeah, over dinner. Okay. Yeah. So this isn't wanton Renaissance violence. This is this is you know, you know these people. They're coming to eat, and then he does this in front of Leonardo and and Machiavelli. And it was a different time, but they have this tells a lot more about their personalities too. Leonardo was was stressed. This have have serious PSD about this. Okay. Um, he was stuttering. He wrote about it. He could not compete this. He could not complete this project because he did the evil nature of man. He put this in his journal later. Wow. Uh, so like he was unable to do art for a while, or, yeah, he was or at least trembling. He, he was shaking. He was. He was. Yeah. This concentration deeply issues. disturbed him. Okay. And and it. Didn't disturb Machiavelli? <laughs> well, Machiavelli thought this was great. He was entertained by it. The fact that he said you need to embrace the evil nature of man. Oh. So Leonardo was like, this is not human. I can't have anything to do with this. This is not me. The sensitive artist, genius. Right. And Machiavelli said, this is great. We need to do more of this. That's why he's got his powers, because this is what he's willing to do. Okay. Wow. And... So this this is really is this like the the inception of of his devious violent ways kind of thing? He's got a role model now to look up to. Oh, that's anything dangerous. goes. Okay, wow. The two men were shocked, but the way they processed the event proved that Da Vinci and Machiavelli were very different men. But both of them could agree on one thing: they were both from Florence, and they both wanted the war to end. Between Pisa and Florence. Well, before we get too much deeper into the history, I kind of want to start getting to our myth a little bit, if you're okay with that. So, um, speaking of polar opposites and team-ups, I want to talk about the value of actually finding your polar opposite to work with. Why we don't always just work with people who are just copies of us. Well, I've learned that in the corporate world, where we have managers that are going to hire a certain type. And that type seems to be their their kind of person, someone they connect with on who's a similar age, a similar race, right? Like similar like sports or like whatever interests they have. We gravitate towards people that are like us. 
Right, it's almost back to like a, a tribal level, where if we're a hunter-gatherer, we want to get people who are in our age bracket, our ability range. Like, we, we want people who are so similar to us. That, that and we, we have a trust factor there, too. We have a trust factor that we're going to understand them. We're going to be able to communicate with them. Right, right. There's a fear in something outside of that. Yes. Well, something that um, I, I first started sort of picking this up in my own personal life by watching uh, the show House. Uh, and this is such a, a goofy, campy way to say it, but I've, I've said this on the podcast before. I have to associate everything in my life through movies and television. Uh, <laughs> they raised you. <laughs> they raised me. Yes, they did. Um, but there's a great line. Uh, uh, doctor House is hiring new doctors. And there's an old, wise, sort of intelligent doctor he's about to hire. And then he suddenly doesn't. He, he turns him away. And the old man looks at him. He's like, well, this makes sense. Because what would happen is we would just agree on everything. What, what's the point in working together if, if we're just going to look at each other and agree? Uh, we don't learn anything. And that's the thing, too. You need, you need to be evenly yoked. But you need, you need to have a partner that has skills that you don't have. Right. Someone who can spot those blind spots for you. Mm-hmm. Um, in our critiques, my, my background, by the way, for, for anyone listening, um, we, we joke about how we, we don't have, you know, uh, uh, we're not medical doctors or anything. My background is actually from uh, uh, art, and I, I went to school for uh, graphic art. And one of the things they talk about is in our critique groups, it's being encouraged to death, where, where you don't get critique where somebody can improve. Nobody looks at your drawing and says, here's how to do this better. What they do instead is everyone just claps and says, you did a really good job. And in my background with sales, that's what we want to hear. We take criticism and feedback and improvements as we're not good enough, and we don't want to hear that. Yeah, it's an attack. We just want to pound our chest and say we're the best. Right. So we're we're thinking, uh, for anyone listening to this, we're encouraging you to find your polar opposite specifically to, to find those blind spots and disagree. Um, there's another example of this. Uh, again, I'm going to movies. Um, people talk about George Lucas and how he, he messed up the prequels when he went and remade Star Wars. Um, but there are lots of videos on YouTube that break down why this happened. And a lot of people attribute this to he wasn't working with enough people who would disagree with him. In the New Hope and in the original trilogy, he had an art director and a wife who would both tell him, knock it off if, if he was going off the rails or if he was getting weird uh, with the writing and, and with the, the direction of the movie. And in the prequels, he basically just hired people who would agree with him. Uh, and this is all on YouTube. I, I, if you're interested, you can watch it. But it's the same thing as the, the Dr. House example is if you just have people who are agreeing with you, you're going to end up with your product, not a group's product. And again, in my corporate experience, on the sales team, we say yes to everything. And then the, and there's on the inside who have to measure all the money. They say no to everything. So if we didn't have that pushback, if we weren't mm-hmm. butting heads, we would go out of business either way. Because they would never say yes, so we'd never get any. We'd never say no, so we'd give everything away and, and we'd both be bankrupt. So that pushback is, is essential. Right, that, that connection in the middle, that, that, that spark where two sides come together, that's, that's where the sweet spot is, I think. So I'm gonna I'm gonna reference um, the Harvard Business Review here. Um, this is from an article, uh, um, "The Problem with Being Too Nice," and uh, here's here's a quote I want to share with you, Todd. Few people want to be the bad guy, but leaders are also expected to make the tough decisions that serve the company or the team's best interest. 
Being too nice can be lazy, inefficient, irresponsible, and harmful to individuals and to the organization. So when we talk about you know disagreeing, we're not we're not saying disagree to butt heads. We're not encouraging you to like just ram into people for no reason. But being the bad guy in the meeting, that can be a good thing. If have you ever sat through a meeting where everyone just like politely nods and they won't, they won't say what the real problem is? Yeah, and they won't point out, so we don't change anything. They're so afraid to say anything and get a target on their back. And I think about what you were saying. What popped in my head is is it's kind of like the parent who is not a parent. They're the friend of the kid. Yes, and the oh, kid that's a perfect to, example. The kid ends up in state prison because of it's got a it's got a, a buddy for a dad. Yeah, and it's the same thing with bosses. If you're too buddy buddy with your people, they they need to have a little bit of fear in them. Right. That you will fire them. If they think they can walk all over you, they won't work. Yes. So if, if you are the, the bad guy in the office, that's not such a bad thing if you're, if you're sparking something that, that leads to productivity. If you're just being a jerk, that's different. But. As long as you're tactful about it. And yeah, and you've done your time. Right. Yeah. I want to I share one more quote with you before we move on to our history again. Uh, this is from Amy Gallo, also Harvard Business Review. Um, And this is from an article, uh, Why We Should Be Disagreeing More at Work. Uh, Quote, As uncomfortable as it may feel when someone challenges your ideas, it's an opportunity to learn. By listening and incorporating feedback, you gain experience, try new things, and evolve. So what this kind of breaks down to, I I think the big takeaway uh, phrase, if I could just sum it up into one phrase, it's productive disagreement. It's it's agreement doesn't always yield good results. Disagreement doesn't mean you're butting heads. Uh, productive disagreement is is really what you're looking at. And, and so I will ask this as a quick question for you, Todd. Uh, how many times have we productively disagreed? <laughs> we get we. This is the thing about Joe and I. Joe and I have very different personality types. We can read the exact same article and take two five different facts out of an article that you totally different sides. Right. And both of us be saying, wow. So we have, um, and one of the reasons I like working with Joe is we have a mutual respect. So it's not out of politeness. We, we disagree a lot about pretty much everything. Yes. But there's a, there's still value there. Right. We, we will disagree, but we'll explore why we disagree. And we, we find out where, the, where the, yeah, the, the truth, really. I mean, that's what we end up finding. You know, talking about the disagreement thing um, in my business, uh, you know, I work a lot of times in outside sales and I call them businesses and stuff. It's very important when you go and, and do have a good disagreement that you have specific examples of things and not just complaining. Mm-hmm. Because disagreement can look like complaining unless you have, if you take certain scenarios and you do those, then that's evidence. Right. That's not just bitching. That's a really good way. Uh, I'm glad you said that because uh, having a focus, having an example of what you're disagreeing with, that means you're not just uh, being disagreeable. And being disagreeable, we all know those people. What you're actually doing is you're addressing an issue that's specific. And if you have a specific issue, specificity means there's solution there. Exactly. And then that's the thing. Pointing out, saying what's wrong at work is not... That's a little kid can say this is screwed up. Yeah, it's it's showing the solutions. What? How can we fix it? That's the real value. That's what the good disagreement. That's when you got to push back. Yes. It's that we've we've identified this. Now this is what we're gonna do. Let's try this. I think this might work. Yes. So if our listener becomes the bad guy in the boardroom, 
Uh, just remember that, uh, well, you're listening to two bad guys who <laughs> do this to each other. So You can come argue with us. You can come be on staff at the re <laughs> We like people with spirit. Right. <laughs> so speaking of disagreement, um, I kind of want to get back to this history because honestly, for my mind, that is the more entertaining part of this because <laughs> I, I want to know what happened. So um, why did these two crazy people, th- these two mad geniuses, why did they want to steal a river? Okay. So the history is Florence and Pisa had a longstanding rivalry for hundreds of years, they'd been involved in wars and land grabs. Okay. Um, they wanted Da Vinci thought of this being the brilliant genius. He wanted to move the river so and bypass Pisa altogether. So obviously that would bring that support and bring more resources and it would starve out the other town. Oh, so so it's not just like uh, uh, divert it to to uh, economically impact them. It would literally starve them out. Starve them out, and then when we say the war to be over, what that means is they're going to be too weak, right, <laughs> to continue. They have to move basically. Yeah. There's so no UN back in these days. Okay, wow. Good. Okay, now Leonardo, he was a great um, engineer, and he had a military mind. He was a true Renaissance man. Um. So he knew ways to improve the irrigation systems in Italy. He really wanted this 10-year war to end. He okay. wanted peace for his for everyone, but mostly for his city. Okay, so he, he's taking his knowledge of irrigation, and he's that's how he's diverting the river. Now, what Machiavelli got out of this river scheme is that the Florentine economy would be flourishing. Da Vinci would become rich. And Machiavelli would become the political heavyweight. Ah, so that's the personal stakes. So we're, we're looking at... Money and power. Money and power. Okay, well, here we go. <laughs> so it really is a heist. This really is Ocean's Eleven. I think you just want money and power to have more sex, though. That's my old personal... That's a different episode. <laughs> right. That's, that's a different book, too. Yeah, I think I included that in the prints. So... We're getting to our second myth here, uh, and, and I want to start off by, by stating, um, technically, extroverts and introverts are not opposites. This is pointed out to us uh, by a good friend of the show and a good friend of ours in real life, Mitra, and, and she said, that's not an opposite, that's just somebody who, who cognitively processes differently. Um, but I will rebuttal that by saying um, Google thinks they're opposites, and, and that means that the zeitgeist and people think they're opposites. So I, I, I went into Google, and I typed in this phrase, can introverts and ex... I, I, I was going to type extroverts, but here's what came up in the top 10 search responses. When Google <laughs> auto-completes something for you, you get to sort of glimpse into how the, the public thinks about it. So can introverts and extroverts, can they date? Can they be friends? Can they be in a relationship? Can they live together? Can they be happily married? Can they work together? These are all what Google thought I was going to ask. So it's been asked billions of times. Yeah, which means those are what the public is asking. So um, they're not opposites, but we think of them as opposites. So I'm going to ask for your participation in this a little bit, Todd, because I'm going to quote, uh, there's a, a great researcher and writer uh, who has been, uh, I found her on a Forbes interview, uh, Jennifer Conwheeler, 
and she talks a lot about introverts and extroverts. She's kind of the expert of, of how introverts and extroverts can work together. And so instead of just me reading out uh, the, the difference between introverts and extroverts, I would like us, as the introvert and the extrovert, to describe us. Like, what, what is an introvert? What is an extrovert? So I'll, I'll start us off, and then I'll pass it to okay. you to I'm, describe I'm ready. extroverts. <laughs> You're ready, yeah. Uh, it's not hard asking us to talk about yeah. ourselves. but uh, So so this is, this is partially our description and partially from this Forbes article. Um, so introverts need time to spend time alone, uh, or they want to spend time alone. They prefer quiet spaces. They handle projects individually. So that means no shared office. Uh, I know that in uh, in business world, that's a, that's a huge sort of uh, a new innovation everyone loves is the the open office. I hate that, by the way. Um, uh, they they thrive on on being an individual, on on thinking things deeply and thoroughly, and they don't share much until it's really just time to to present. Um, and and to extroverts, that that can seem pretty alien. Um, so for you, the extrovert, Todd, what, what does it mean to be an extrovert? Well, let me go back. This is what I think. It, I heard this phrase the other day, and I thought this was great. This guy who's a self, he, he calls himself an introvert. He says, I'm the kind of guy that if you ask me a question, I get back to you in three days. <laughs> and then another one with social distancing. Um, this guy said, six feet, that's for amateurs. <laughs> right. I've been social distancing my whole life. So uh, to me, an extrovert is somebody who can't wait to talk, yeah. who loves attention, who is, um, introduces themselves to people, makes eye contact with people, is, is uh, maybe a little bit more emotional. Right. And I don't like to think less studious because I don't think that's fair, but I think overall, I think if you were to you know, categorize, they're more into going out and doing, less studying, more jumping in the pool instead of right. reading a book about how to swim. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, um, I think I think to me, to to my introverted brain, um, all the extroverts I know, they seem flighty, or, or like like if they're concentrating on a project, it's it's more yes. frenetic. Like Absolutely, it's, it's more they, have, they have ADD and they brag about it. Right. You know, they they talk about their faults. They'll 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 talk too much about their personal life to people before they're ready. Yes. Like I would think, I want it. I want an introvert to be the architect of my house, but I want the real estate agent to be an extrovert. Perfect. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. So, to to work with an introvert, if you're an extrovert, or vice versa, um, uh, Jennifer here, uh, Jennifer Con Wheeler, has some advice for us, and um, I, I encourage you to go read her articles and look her up on YouTube. She has some really fascinating stuff. Um, but she, she takes an A, B, C, D, E tactic when it comes to extroverts and introverts working together. Um, the A is accept the alien. You can't change your opposite. And this is something Todd and I have, have worked through, which is um, you, you can't change the way somebody works on a project. I can't send Todd uh, um, three or four books with bookmarks and, and you know, expect him to go through hyper-dense material. Um, he works the way he works. He'll, he'll take notes studiously. Uh, we're both very hard workers. I think that's the reason why we get along. Um, but, but we have both figured out how to accept the alien. And that's the thing. You, you have to get the best out of him, but you have to also encourage him. With Joe, Joe's a world-class writer. So he'll write, he will, you know, award-winning writer. So he'll write narratives 
But he's not the person that's going to go out like I am and tell everyone how great the show is. Right. And to, to win, you kind of need both. Yes, absolutely. Uh, when we started this, I think I told you I was garbage at marketing. That, that, that's the, the biggest uh, fault in, in my existence is I love writing. I, I can't talk about what I'm doing. And as, an, as a salesperson, the, the, uh, the business side of it is to tell everybody who you are and what you do. And everybody means yes. <laughs> it means everybody, <laughs> right? So that not that just, actually not just our inner circle. That very cleanly takes us to our next two, which is B is bring on the battles, and that that was us figuring out which role we can take and what we can we can expect each other to do, and then cast the character. So you you talking about how you're doing the marketing, and then me talking about doing the writing. That's that's knowing each of our roles. Um, and I, I think that one, I want to focus on that just a little bit because that's so valuable in a in a opposite partnership uh, to figure out and well define what your roles are before you move forward. And it's uncomfortable, like it, it especially for an introvert like me, to sit down and actually say, okay, you do these things on this table. I will do these things on my table. Uh, that's that's a tough conversation to start. It is, and I've got a couple things to talk about to add on that. The first one being, I think you have to find someone who you respect. What we go for in our relationship and what we have is a mutual respect. No, we don't see things the same, but we find the same things interesting. So it's you have to have a genuine interest. Like for us in the show and writing, we have interests in speeches, history, and science. Those three things, when we see an article, we share it with each other even before we did the show. Yes. So you have to have that common interest. I see a lot of what happens in, in these kind of introvert extra relationships. I see it as like a husband and wife. One of the partners stays home and takes care of the kids. One's at work. Now, what yeah. I've seen in my life is, is the one person, the person who's at work thinks, oh, they just stay home all day with a kid. Must be nice. And then the other person at home says, oh, they're at work all day. Must be great. Leave me here working 24 hours a day. They don't have a genuine appreciation for the other person's talents or abilities. Yes. And the stresses and how hard that is. Rarely do they. And that's then that's when you get with a partner, you not only have to encourage them, but you have to have a gratitude for, for what they for all the hard work they do. Absolutely. Yeah, you have to look at what the other person does and ask yourself, do I want to do that or would I want to do that? And would I be able to do it that well? Right. I could write a narrative, but it's not gonna be as good as yours. I right. could write probably for the next 20 years and take every writing class and do every YouTube video. Yours are still going to be <laughs> in 20 <laughs> years better than mine. So you got you got to know your lane and know your role. And when I see uh, you on Instagram making friends with everybody, I get heartburn and I get dizzy <laughs> from my blood pressure going up. So, so that's that's our, our next two points, actually. It's, it's D is destroy the dislike. When you learn to respect each other and act like friends, you can talk and have fun and be open. And then the E is each person can't offer everything. So what we're discussing, the divvying up the partnership to make things work, that, that's really essential. Uh, I'm going to quote this Forbes interview. Um, we didn't do this much because I, I don't like to just read other people's articles quietly to myself into the podcast. Uh, but I, I just want to share this one quote with you to encourage you to go check out Jennifer's article. Uh, quote, Opposites attract and often get along well as work partners, but these high-performing duos often give the illusion of being effortlessly well-balanced. In reality, it takes some work, but it is work that will lead to extraordinary results. When introverts and extroverts stop focusing on their differences, but on the results they are trying to achieve, they are much more successful. So... To me, that is the key to any opposite duo. We, we joked in the, in the myths, really joked, 
uh, messy versus clean working together, old versus young, dogs and cats. Um, what you're really focusing on is anyone can work together as long as you have uh, results in mind, as long as you have picked out a goal and the other collaborator is equally excited to get to that goal. Um, if you're, if you're, and a lot of times we have to really shake up and get a new team if you're going to succeed. And for me, it's it's always a sports analogy. Um, and let's just take football. There are people at different positions with different body parts, with different skill sets. Yeah. You cannot switch them around. You need that tall, skinny receiver running down. You need that tall quarterback with a cannon arm. If you change anything, you lose. Yes. Everyone has to do their role really well, and you have to appreciate the other person. That is well put. So we're talking results focus, that, that opposites can get together when they have something in mind that they want. Our two opposites today, Da Vinci and Machiavelli, wanted a river. So um, that's a big goal. But Todd, <laughs> did they get the river? Okay. Now, stealing a river is a big task. Right? I laugh every time I say that. Um, but Da Vinci didn't care. He was up for it. He was gleefully ready to do it. Um, now, this involved tunneling under a mountain. Now, this is before the bulldozer. This is the 1500s here, okay? Pickaxes and <laughs> shovels. Yeah. Moving millions of tons of dirt, millions of tons, it required 50,000 workers. <laughs> okay? For him to have this kind of vision. Right. right? So, so McAvini signed off on them. His plans went to an engineer named Columbilino. Okay. He's the real villain of this whole story. Okay. He was under a lot of pressure to get this done. So he's managing all these teams. Um, there's war still going on with this other city. Mm -hmm. So he didn't follow the instructions that Da Vinci gave him. <laughs> so this engineer, this this under pressure engineer, he's just skipping literally Da Vinci's instructions. Right. But just but you kind of okay. So instead of digging one massive trench, like Da Vinci said, he decided to do two shallow trenches. Okay. Okay. But he he underestimated um, how many men he would need and how long it would take. So no, they're doing this huge project. They got fifty thousand guys working. He's in command of them. Okay. And then war breaks out. So they're trying to build, dig these two trenches, and they're being attacked by the enemy. Okay, so like Pisa, who they're trying to undermine, they're they're sending out right who the, the city they're trying forces. To, they're trying to drive. They probably they don't even know what they are, but they see the men they're attacking them. Oh, okay. But can you imagine trying to dig <laughs> millions of tons of dirt and then being attacked while you're doing it? They're they're working on a building by by my workplace. Like these guys in hard hats. Just imagine soldiers coming out every once in a while. Like they're already grumpy enough. They hate their you know. They, they're, they're you don't pay me enough for this surly, shit, right? Surly coffee. Yeah. I would report this to the union. Right. These guys are literally trying to kill us. Just imagine like Italian guys with spears come out every you know thirty minutes to like poke at them. Yeah. So to answer your question, it was a failed attempt. Okay. <laughs> but pretty damn impressive. Right? <laughs> right. Almost taking a river is, is pretty good. That, that's a good one. So you, the listener, if you're ready to move a river or a mountain, who would you look for in a collaborate? And also, if you have a set of instructions from Ikea and you know Da Vinci made those instructions, <laughs> follow them. Uh, I got to share this with everyone, but... I, a while back, I was having some problems. Joe, being my friend, I reached out to him and I said, "Do you 
do you think I'm crazy? Do you think I'm losing it? And, and he looked at me and he said, yes, yes, I do. And then he went on uh, to make fun and say, all you extroverts, you go and talk to strangers all the time. I think you all should be committed. So I had to share that with you. <laughs> you remember that? I do. Yeah. I, I named several of our extrovert friends. You're and like, then yeah. I was like, you're all acting crazy to me. I couldn't tell you if, yeah, if something was off. Tell me this, Joe. How can you find your productive polar opposite? Well, for for my personal life, uh, um, my productive polar opposite uh, uh, bothered me during a meeting, uh, and and I'm kidding, of course. But um, I've been lucky enough to to find people who have similar goals to me. But if I were looking for one, and specifically when I when I try to value a polar opposite collaborator, um, there are there are qualifications. I had a mental list. Uh, and then I found a more complete mental list online. And this comes from a, a Medium article. And I just wanted to share this and see how many of these values matched up with you. Um, these are uh, written by Elise Himes. And it's the 10 top qualifications of a great collaborator. We're only reading the titles uh, of each of her, her um, uh, subheaders because I, I don't want to read out her entire article. Um, but these are, these are the biggest ones that stuck out to me and tell me if these, these resonate with you. The first one for, for finding a good polar opposite collaborator, a collaborator you can really get along with. First, you find somebody who is egoless. Now, egoless to me means, means results focused. They're not, they're not in it to win it for them or their ego. They're, they're really just looking at what they produce. They don't want more of the cake. They want an even amount. Yes. Yeah, they, they're, they're just without ego going into something. And I've, I've used that word 20 times since I read this article and I saw that word. And I was like, that's a perfect way to Humility put it. Humility is a very important quality to me. It yeah. Because I, I don't like working with people. I don't like working in the same office when I'm getting paid with, with people who, are, who aren't humble and braggers. And, you know. Yeah. So somebody who wants the project to reflect themselves. Mm-hmm. That's not what you, you want. Somebody who's generous. Uh, somebody who's appreciative, curious. That that's I think why why you and I like working with each other so much. It's like for us, it's like if we hear an idea, you know, something, and we have notebooks, we have just hundreds, thousands of pages of things, articles we read that we thought were cool. You're the only person I can go to, and that's why we became friends. And I'm like, Joe, yeah. this is cool, and you, and you think it's cool too. Yeah, it's a genuine. Everyone else, I'm kind of bothering them with it. You know, they'll let me. Right. <laughs> and they'll be yeah. polite with me for a little bit. There's like nobody cares about documentaries. I find it good what I said yeah. to you. I think, and that's nice. Yeah, finding somebody who's who's as curious as you are. That's so important to to a collaboration. And curious too can be on on getting better. You know, how yeah. can we do things better? Getting new ideas, trying not just just not being too rigid. Right. Yeah. You, you can you can use you can reach a point in in your productivity or development or whatever you're working on where you think okay we're good, but but being curious about how do we continue improving? How do we get mastery? That that's something you don't often find. Uh, a couple others: uh, the people who listen and listen to understand. Uh, people who are flexible. Uh, look for people who give and expect trust. That's that's a big one for me. Um, uh, disciplined workers, so that that's similar to generous, I think, but but it's worth stating. Um, Self motivated and inspiring. That one I highlighted because um, uh, I I almost exclusively only work with people who I don't have to motivate. As the introvert, 
I'm not gonna yell at you like a spotter. I'm not gonna be behind you with the weights and say, you know, get it, you know, get it, go for it, dig deep. I, I let people know what we should be working on and they, they really have to be motivated. And that's what I appreciate about working with Todd is, is I can hand something off to him and then come back later and he's researched the hell out of it or he's, he's practiced it and that's valuable to me. Somebody who's respectful. And that's something Todd brought up earlier, and, and he brought up early just in us working together, is mutual respect. That That's the end one. We're going we're gonna to end on that one because it's so important. I want to add one more. Sure. I, I think it's what I work well with you is I think you have to be competitive with the other person. Yes. It doesn't mean you want to squash their stuff. You want to outwork them. Hard and, agree. Yeah. And you run your own lane. I think of it like a swimming race, and we might have a different stroke, breaststroke or or swim, whatever, crawl stroke, whatever, but we want to be faster in that lane and, and then impress the other person, that, that kind of healthy competition. Yes, um, uh, that's a very good way of putting it. There are some podcasts where I come in, I look at what we've completed, and I realize that um, I'm not going to name any of them specifically, but I'll look at them and be like, this was a Todd episode. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm going to... If you don't mind, I'm going to ask for a spoiler here. Um, like like most great heist movies, we, we get to the end. Like, like like at the end of the heist, whether it goes good or bad, you know, Ocean's Eleven, I, I remember this one. They show the character at the end, and you get a little fun caption at the bottom of the screen that says where they are now. So I was wondering <laughs> if you could give that to us, Todd. Tell us tell us how things went for... Uh, who's this Da Vinci? Never heard of yeah, him. I was going to say. So how, how did things go well, for these they're two? They're not still around. But, <laughs> but, so after the Field River heist, uh, in 1505, Leonardo went on to paint the Battle of Enghiari, a.k.a. the Lost Leonardo painting. Okay, so that's the, the Leonardo painting that um, uh, supposedly was was painted over by a fresco later. Now, what happened after Machiavelli failed to defeat Pisa by drought? In 1506, he rallied an army of 400 Florentine farmers. He gave them iron breastplates, and he trained them to be warriors. Then in 1509, he took his army and defeated Pisa. <laughs> Finally. So- Finally, yeah. So, so he's he's like, okay, nuts to this. I don't need your damn river. And that he seems just like a lot easier, doesn't takes it? Takes a small <laughs> army in, a small army of untrained farmers. We know probably yeah. most of them are fifteen years old. Right. It's not quite as satisfying as uh, getting a river and getting super rich from having a new river and all this new farmland. But that that works too. Just an army. Now, this is just like a little history bonus fact. Um, did you know that there was a Mona Lisa twin. You mean like Mona Lisa had a twin? Like two of her were walking There's two around? Mona Lisas. Oh, the painting. Yes. Okay. Yo, no, yeah, not the, <laughs> not, not the, not the, what was he called, the actress? What do you call it? A painting. It, it, yeah, the model. The model. There you go. <laughs> there was two of the paintings. And there's one that's a twin and it's supposed to be brighter and more colorful. Ooh. Okay, now this is it. This is really, I thought this was very interesting. Okay, they've studied this. They've studied these two paintings because there's supposed to be only one original. Okay. They think that they were painted at the exact same time. Um, people say it was painted at the exact same time as the original and possibly by one of Leonardo's pupils, one of his mentees. Oh, so is that why the it's brighter? 
Well, they took they took two of the, them, and they well the the brighter one because it hasn't been exposed to the elements for as long, so it's been away and it's been protected for longer. Oh, so what they think happened? They took them under um, infrared technology, and it works kind of like an X ray, and they see beneath the paint, mm-hmm. and they can see. Um, different versions, and they can see when there was the replica made the changes were made in the exact same order as the original. Okay. So how is that possible without them being side by side, like a mentor, a pupil working side by side? Oh, uh, so she's copying his strokes, like they, they're just making the same changes. And it shows that they were set probably because of the eye about a few yards away. So they were side by side, painting over the shoulder, the master and the pupil. Oh, that's awesome. And they've got it narrowed down to one of Leonardo's two assistants, Melza or Solly. They were both rumored to be his lovers. Okay. I thought that was funny. That was great. No, that's awesome. Uh, you can't sleep with the help. Who can you sleep with, right? Right. <laughs> and that, that's that's twice the, the stolen river behind the Mona Lisa, if you want to look that <laughs> up. Yeah. If we've learned anything today... It's that we can avoid being encouraged to death. We can avoid inaction through politeness. It's okay to be the bad guy in the boardroom, to disagree, to challenge. If you're doing it to get the best results from the right people and you do it respectfully. Remember, when you team up with radical opposites, be prepared to be befuddled. Accept your partner's alien ways of thinking and working. As long as they're willing to be challenged and productive, healthy ways. In the end, good collaboration hinges on mutual respect of each other's time and talent. Be egoless. Be curious. Give and expect trust. In the end, it doesn't matter how many different the partnership is. When opposites collaborate, they can move mountains or, you know, rivers. Thank you for listening to The Reengineered You. If you like the show, tell someone about it. That means the world to us. You can also connect with us at www.re-engineeredu.com. We have research links, show notes, and blog articles for every episode. We also appreciate feedback, and if you bring us some spirited debate, I will ask questions in return. (laughs) We're not experts in anything, but we've got an opinion on everything. Thank you.